morning, everyone. Uh, the Bible reading from this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1 until 9. Isaiah 11, 1 until 9. The branch of Jesse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sass around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The, lam the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If you're, uh, if you're in youth church, year six, year eight program, it's about to begin. If you've not met me before, my name's Peter. It's great you're with us. I can't encourage you, as I said, we are dealing with a bit of a bigger section in uh, Isaiah today. You'll notice at the, at the back of the outline, we always pin out for you what the passage will be for next week. Now, Isaiah's a big book, and so occasionally we're doing some bigger sections. If you think six chapters is big today, you wait till next week. If you can be at home this week and read, I can't remember how many Tim's got next week. It might be 15 or more. Uh, but there's a common theme among those chapters, which is why we're grouping them together. But it, you will get far more out of it if you read behind the scenes and then bring your Bibles with you. Much better than a phone, bring a Bible and uh, you'll see. Yeah, and, um, yeah. Let's pray. Let's get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. To give us ears to hear and eyes that perceive that we would turn and follow you and be healed. Amen. All right, I do want to talk to you this morning about the whole, or about emotions. And you might be thinking, okay, Pete Blanche is going to talk to us about emotions. This isn't going to go very long. You might be right. Uh, but um, the emotions I particularly want to talk to you about are the emotions of fear and the emotions of anxiety. And the reason I want to talk to you about them is because they are littered over and over again in the passage before us today. They are the emotions that just keep rising to the surface again and again. And you'll be aware they are emotions that rise to the surface in your life again and again. Now, if, if I said, now, hands up, who's never, ever been afraid in their life? And then I ask, hands up if you're afraid to put your hand up. And we capture everyone somehow in that. But that, all of us go through fear and anxiety. It might be fear of, you know, you're starting a new job. It might be fear of being in a large group. And you've got to ask a question. It might be fear of public speaking. Like everyone's got, It might be all sorts of fears, finance, health, fear of death. Fear and anxiety is common and they are difficult emotions for us because they create stress and you lose sleep. 
and they keep you up at night and they ruin your peace. And so the vast majority of people wish they didn't really have these emotions very often. And we also, you add into that that we don't like them, you, you, you put us into a culture, a culture that is very concerned for us to live happy lives. And so there's all sorts of advice about how to deal with things in your life that stop you being happy and fear and anxiety stop you being happy. And so our culture gets the work. How can we get rid of it? And you would have noticed, I think, particularly for youth and kids, we want them to be happy. We don't want them to be anxious. We don't want them living in fear. And so you have brands of clothes called No Fear and uh, taglines from companies like Nike, just do it. Don't be afraid, just do it. And in and, and some ways, some of the pieces of advice you can be here is that the aim for you in your life is to become fearless so that you can be a person who is not anxious and not afraid and to raise kids that, that are fearless. And can I say, that is precisely the, the complete wrong thing to do. If you want to deal with fear and anxiety in your life, this is precisely what not to do to get rid of this. One of the key answers that we're going to see tumble out in this passage today, one of the key answers to deal with fear and, and anxiety in your life is actually to have more fear and greater fear. And at one level, that's counterintuitive. But that's one of the reasons we're going to look at the Bible closely and see how that tumbles out so that we can deal with these tricky emotions in our own life in the midst of what is a tricky, can I, this is a tricky passage. Um, I'm going to help us get stuck into it. Now, it, to, 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 to deal with this tricky passage, it's important to remember where we are up to in, in Isaiah as we come to chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Uh, remember where, 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 where we've left base camp, we're walking up Mount Everest, and on our trek today, Isaiah is going to prepare us particularly for the coming of Jesus. And he's going to prepare us for that in these chapters by telling us about a very disappointing king, a woeful king, an awful king. He's going to speak to us about that king first before he then speaks to us about a promise for a vastly superior king to come. And the reason he's going to speak like this to prepare us for the whole issue of leadership and kingship is because if you remember where we left last week and at the end of the last kind of verse of chapter 6 that had that intriguing end because God was, God was going to punish Israel for disregarding his holiness like you level a forest, the whole nation will be leveled but right at the very end you had this hint that there will be a stump, a holy stump in the land suggesting regrowth of a people beyond the judgment and it raised those kind of questions of who are these people? How many of them will be there? What future is there for these, this holy seed? And in particular, who is going to be the leader of that holy seed? And that is where Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 comes, comes into its own here. And it's going to start by telling us about a woeful leader, a woeful king. Pick it up at verse 1. So chapter 7, verse 1. That's where we're starting. Chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, the king, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. 
And look, I know that as immediately as I read that, it's tricky. There's all sorts of names, all sorts of places. And you're kind of like, what's going on here? Uh, let me try and help you set the scene and get a grip on what's, what's being said here. Years ago, like 200 years before Isaiah, way back in 922 BC, the United Kingdom of Israel, that nation that was united under King David and also united under King Solomon, that united kingdom was split in two. Like a civil war that happened that divides one country into two. So there was the, 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 the one, the United Nation of Israel was, was split into two different countries. And from that time on, from 921, Israel, the nation of Israel, the kingdom existed in two halves, a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, kind of like two countries. And here we are in Isaiah's day where we are in, in the Bible today, 200 years later, and Isaiah is a prophet sent by God to the southern kingdom, to the southern nation of that divided nation. And Isaiah is speaking to, to that country, and to, to that king of Judah, to a man named Ahaz. And he's saying to him, you know those northern tribes he split away from us 200 years ago? Well, those northern tribes, they've teamed up with another country called Aram. And they're going to come down and beat us up. And it's a serious beating that those other countries have in mind. I mean, dash your head a little bit to, um, to verse 5 of chapter 7. Uh, here, here is what the king of, of, of Judah is told. He's told Aram, that's one of the countries. Ephraim, which is another another name for those northerners, those northern tribes, those two nations, and their king and Ramaliah, that's the king of the king of the northerners, they have plotted your ruin, saying, "Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves, and makes the son of Tobiel king over it." Okay, two nations plotting together to take over Judah, saying, "Well, let's let's overrun it and put our own king in place." Then it's serious news. It's frightful news, genuinely terrifying news. So frightful that we're told there in verse 2 that the hearts of Ahaz and the people of Judah, they were shaking like the trees of a forest shaken by the wind. They are literally quaking in their boots. Now you hear that and you might be thinking, oh, why is that happening? Why, is the, why are the northerners called Israel or Ephraim, why are they teaming up with this other country called Aram to calm down and be the bullies? And beat up on poor old Judah. Well, let me explain it by using a map. Okay, here's a map to try and help you orientate to the geography here. Uh, you can see on the map down south, down south, that is where the, the, where the nation of Judah is. That's where Isaiah is. That's where Ahaz is. It's the orange guys there down in Judah. You can see just to the north of Judah is the northerners, the northern kingdom, here called Israel. And then a little bit further north of Israel is that, is that purple country there called Aram. And what's happened is that Aram and Israel have joined forces. They've joined forces because there's another country even further to the north or the north, what's at the northeast there, called Assyria. And you see Assyria is the emerging superpower of the day and they, they're huge. And they're about to come down through this region and they, they are looking and they're keen to enlarge their territory. And they're not going to do it through diplomacy. Now we are talking 
we are talking swords and spear and war and death, and they are just going to crush people and crush nations. And so what, what, what happens when a smaller group of, when, when small countries fear, fear the great superpower coming down to attack them? What do they do? Well, one of the things you can do is make an alliance. Make an alliance with some other smaller countries to try and pull your resources so that you've got enough, enough resources to fight back. And so that's what Aram and Israel do. They form an anti-Assyrian pact and they pull their resources and they are desperate for Judah to join them. But Judah, King Ahaz, he doesn't want to join in with the two nations. There's a lot of hatred between them. And this makes Judah scared. It makes Judah scared because before Assyria comes down to attack, these other two nations are going to come down and attack his city to try and overrun it. And they're scared because if I can do it pictorially, uh, it's a bit like this. If I can get the next screen, here it is. I've tried to depict in some ways Judah and the size of their army. Okay, now here's the army of Judah. Here is the army now of, of, of Israel. They're a bit bigger. But you add to them the alliance they've made with Aram. And you can see why Judah is quaking in their boots. They're overpowered. They're outmatched. Now, of course, the big problem they all have is this. Okay, that's the big problem they've all got. But they're unsure at this point in time just how powerful Assyria is. And so they are seeking to pull the resources. And because Judah won't join in, Aram and Israel come to fight Judah, to force Judah to, to, to join in. And Judah knows it's going to be overpowered, so they are shaking in their boots. And in the midst of this fear and anxiety, God sends Isaiah to speak to the king of the southerners, the king of Judah, to Ahaz, to tell him not to worry. In chapter, in the, uh, was it chapter 7, look at verse 4. At this point in time, Isaiah is meeting with King Ahaz at, at, the, at the point where it's at the end of the aqueduct near the launderer's field, which we know from David's account of taking over Jerusalem in the first place is a point of vulnerability for the city. He meets him at the point of vulnerability and he says to him, look at chapter 7, verse 4, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Notice those first words, be careful. He says that because fear is genuinely a dangerous place to be in. Because if you are fearful and anxious of something, you'll want to avoid that fear. You'll want to get rid of that anxiety. And you will often want to do that as quickly as you possibly can. And that can actually bring you to a point of making irrational, rash, stupid foolish decisions be careful is what Isaiah says and uh, as a side point we Christians need to hear that too in the midst of a world that's becoming more and more hostile towards genuine Christianity as a Christian it's possible in the midst of fear and anxiety to compromise and to capitulate when you should have been stood firm be careful and what does he go on to say Isaiah goes on to say if if you keep reading Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood. Because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of and because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramaliah. 
Don't be worried about those two nations who have formed their alliance who are going to come and attack you. Don't worry about them. What's going to happen to them? Look at verse 7. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. They're not going to overrun you. And he goes on and he's saying, these two nations, they're just smoldering stubs. That's all they are, about to be snuffed out. Nothing to worry about. Don't be fearful of them. In a very short period of time, God, God says to him, through, through Isaiah, they won't even be nations. They themselves are about to be utterly destroyed. And so the news for Ahaz is that for all the big talk of those kings up north, for Israel and Aram and their, and their little alliance, despite their boasting of what they're going to do to us, eh, it's not going to happen. God's going to shatter them, shatter them both. Judah is going to be safe. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. But of course, these words from God to Ahaz come at a point in time before, you know, as it's all kind of un unfolding and taking place. And all Ahaz has got is a word from a prophet. That should be enough. But all he's got, that's all he's got is a word at the moment. But God so wants Ahaz to trust him that God goes on to say to Ahaz that, look, given how scared you are and the nation is, so as to prove to you that Judah is going to be okay, King Ahaz, you can ask me for a sign. And I'll give you one. See verse 10, chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz says, I will not. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, friends, there's something here that's important to grasp, but it's perhaps not obvious when you first read the passage here. Ahaz, at this point, sounds like a goodie. I don't want to put the Lord, my God, to the test. He sounds great, doesn't he? Quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy that you're not meant to do, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He sounds great. However, when you look up this, the account of, what, of this exact same incident in 2 Kings chapter 16, if you're a note taker, 2 Kings 16, you can go back and read that after, it's afternoon. If you go back and read that account, what is obvious is that Ahaz, he doesn't want a sign from God. Because he's already decided behind the scenes to make a treaty with Assyria for protection. He doesn't want a sign from God that God will protect them when he's already decided to sign a treaty with Assyria to protect them. A sign at this point in time would only make him look bad for the alliance that he has made. Which, by the way, was a big no-no in the first place because when Israel first entered into the Promised Land, God expressly told them, do not make treaties with foreign nations. I am all the protection you need. And so all in all, King Ahaz, he, he is a major disappointment. He is the king of God's people, yet he is shaking like a leaf. He has no confidence at all in what God says. He disobediently goes and makes a treaty with another nation and now he's hiding behind false piety in order to make himself look better than he is. He is a woeful king. And God sees straight through him. God's got a habit of doing that kind of stuff, right? See straight through him. And even though Ahaz may not want a sign, oh, he's going to get one anyway. Only it's not the kind of sign he's going to enjoy. It's going to be a sign to show that this woeful king 
that he's going to be rejected. And what's the sign? It's the sign of a child. Look at verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, this is, this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the right and the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, it's important to get your thinking straight here. Because I think it's really easy to misunderstand what's going on in these verses here. Easy to misunderstand because if you've been reading the chapter so far and you're going along and you're thinking, oh man, all these names, all these places, I don't know much what's going on. Hey, Emmanuel, I've heard that before. I know what's going on here. I know of Jesus. I know the virgin birth. I know what's going on. And you latch onto something and you're thinking Christmas and Jesus before you even think in Isaiah and thinking caps on. Brothers and sisters, thinking caps on. Let's see it in its own context. For starters, verse 14 literally reads, the young woman is with child you can tell that if you go bibles in front of you from the footnotes in my bible where it has the virgin will be tried the word virgin has a little marker next to it alerting me to a footnote and the footnote says virgin could just as easily be translated young woman which is often what a virgin is is a young woman and so this verse actually may not necessarily be saying anything about the state of the woman's virginity at all it's just that translators get excited about it being quoted by Matthew that this is about Jesus, which actually was a virgin birth. And so they keep reading the word virgin and virginity back into this original setting of Isaiah where the original is far more ambiguous. In its original setting, Isaiah probably did not have in mind a virgin birth like what happened with Jesus, but a young woman having a child. Now, what does a sign mean then? Well, in its original setting, think about it. King Isaiah, he doesn't want a sign. Sorry, King Ahaz, let me get that right. King Ahaz, he doesn't want a sign because he's already decided disobediently that he's going to trust Assyria rather than trust God. God's going to give him a sign anyway. And the sign will be this child born to a young woman. And before that child is even old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, the two countries that Ahaz is scared of, those two countries will be laid to waste. In other words, before the child has even had a chance to grow up, Aram and Israel and, and their alliance will be crushed. And you might be going, well, that sounds pretty good for Ahaz, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. But there's a twist. For Assyria, who you might remember King Ahaz, who has run to, run to for protection, rather than running to God for protection. Well, in verse 17, the twist is that God now says he's going to use Assyria, Assyria to punish King Ahaz as well, rather than protect him. See verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since the, well, since the civil war, since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring, he will bring, God will bring the king of Assyria. 
And what happens in the rest of this chapter as it unfolds there in chapter 7 is God is going to describe how he's going to use Assyria to come and humiliate and humble Judah. So, verse 18, In that day the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. Now you get that, don't you? It's not literally talking bees and flies. It's using metaphors and language to describe the armies of those nations. I think derogatorily describe the armies of those nations. That he's going to whistle and they're going to come. In verse 19, they will come and settle in the deep, deep ravines and in the crevices and the rocks and all the thorn bushes and in the water holes. And in that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of, the king of Assyria, the razor. He's coming. To shave your head and private parts and to cut off your beard also. He's going to come and to bring mockery to you. To, to shame you. So much so that the nation, Judah, the land they live in, will become just briars and thorns. It will be so devastated. In fact, down in verse 21, it speaks of the land being so devastated by Assyria that the crops won't be able to grow so that all the people will have to survive on is, a milk, is milk from a few cows. And some wild honey. Which is why way back in verse 15, the Emmanuel child himself will eat curds and honey because that's all there will be to eat in the land. So ravaged will it be. And so in its original context, the birth of this child, Emmanuel, it is all about the rejection and punishment of of woeful King Ahaz. In fact, even the name Emmanuel is a rebuke to King Ahaz. Because Isaiah is saying to King Ahaz, this child will be called Emmanuel because God is with us. In other words, he's not with you. He's with us with those who, unlike you, Ahaz, with those who do trust God and look to him for protection. He's with them. And of course, I mean, the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, as we, we don't want to skip over the, the, the Mary and the virgin birth at that point, do we? Is, the ultimate, is even bigger than what Isaiah was imagining because it's not just God with us in terms of ideas, it's God with us in person as God himself steps onto the planet to be with those who trust him in Jesus. Okay, how are you going? Hope I'm making it clear for you in this tricky passage. King Ahaz is a dud. As a sign of God's rejection of him, Emmanuel will be born. And before that child is very old, before he isn't a chance to grow up, the countries he's afraid of, Iran and Israel, will be laid waste. But before the king is very old, uh, before the child is very old, Assyria is going to come and punish Judah as well. Now, I'm hoping you're finding all that interesting and getting a good grip on what the passage is on about. And at this point in time, you might be going, that's fantastic, Pete, but what's it got to do with me? How do I respond to this part of the Bible? Well, come back with me to the issue of fear. Because Ahaz, I hope you can see, is driven by fear. And in his fear, he's making rash, dumb, stupid, foolish decisions, making treaties he should never make. And, and there's a lesson he needs to learn here about fear. 
and a lesson we need to pause because we need to learn that lesson too. But it's not a straightforward lesson, is it? Because uh, as you read the chapter, you might think, um, well, Ahaz, the thing you are afraid of isn't going to happen. So sleep easy. Don't stress. Don't worry. That's the first half of the chapter. Yet to the second half of the chapter, it says, but, oh, but Ahaz, the thing you're really worried about, that is going to happen. So don't sleep easy. Worry about it. How does that help me with my fears and anxiety? Well, here's the lesson Ahaz needed to learn. Ahaz, your God, our God, he doesn't just predict the future. He doesn't just foresee the future. He doesn't just respond to the future. He rules the future. He controls the future. He is the Lord of the future. And Ahaz, he is for he is for the nation, Ahaz. If only you would wake up to it and trust him. And that is a truth we need to see clearly as well. Because if you read this chapter and you go, Oh, Ahaz, in the midst of his fears, God gave him a special word. Send him a prophet, got a special word to tell him that the thing he wasn't to be afraid of, it wasn't going to happen, so it's not, he doesn't need to be afraid. Great, that's what I need in my fears. I need a special word. I need a prophet to come and talk to me. I need a special word from God that when I'm in full of fear and anxiety, what I need is a word for me outside of the scriptures to deal with, to calm my fears. No, that's not the lesson to learn. It only worked for Ahaz really in the very short term, didn't it? Because the word coming after that really put him into a spin. See, what happens when you always seek a special word for, for, you, for, uh, for you and your fears outside the scriptures, that when you're anxious, what happens is, you, is, 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 what happens is that when that fear is done and dusted, and that, that's, that, that's past, what happens when, you, when the next thing you fear comes around? Do you need another word? And what about the one after that? Or what about the looking for a sign? That when fears come, is this passage an encouragement for me to look for a sign from God that in the midst of my fears, it's all going to be okay? No. For do you see the problem with this kind of process of needing a word or the getting of a sign is that you will just end up lurching from one disaster to another, always needing a special word, always seeking a sign and... The danger of seeking a sign is that there was someone, wasn't there? Someone somewhere said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Do you remember who said that? Yeah, it was Jesus, wasn't it? Do not read this situation in this chapter, which is an extraordinary situation, not an ordinary one, an extraordinary situation where God invites Ahaz for a sign, don't use it to then be the model in your life for how to deal with fear and anxiety. I think many Christians today, not thinking properly, fall into this trap. Fall into the insecure and immature trap of always needing another special word for them or seeking some sort of sign to give them confidence and make them feel better. But there is something far better than that. That is the lesson this chapter is pointing us to. It's not know a special word and a special sign from God about the future each time. No, it's know the God who controls the future. And know that as he controls the future, 
He is controlling it for your good. He is for you, not against you. And so trust him with the future, that he is controlling it for your good. I think that is the engine room here to deal with your fears and anxieties. And that is what tumbles out of this passage. God doesn't just predict the future. It's not like he goes, I can see down the passage of time and see what's going to happen. No, he rules it. He just whistles, it says. And the great powers of the ancient worlds come like bees and flies to do his bidding. The reason God knows what the future will be like is because he is the one that makes it happen. And so, brothers and sisters, our God is the Lord of the future. Nothing happens apart from his will. And you can know that he works for the good of all those who love him. That he is for you in the future, not against you. And you can know that because because Emmanuel, the ultimate fulfillment of that sign, that God is with us. And that he did send his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. He's for us. That is the help you need in your fear and anxiety. Do not keep looking for signs for your comfort. Don't look for extra special words. Trust the God of the Bible who controls the future at work for your good. Okay, come back to Isaiah now. Let's... let's, uh, Let's, let's keep working our way. We've got a lot of, we've got a few bit to go, don't we, through these chapters. Come back to Isaiah. Now look, the mention of this child to be born, the Emmanuel, the sign that is actually going to be given to Ahaz, that raises the question then of, well, who, who is it? The virgin, the young woman will give birth? It, it, in Isaiah, as Isaiah originally wrote it in his own context, it's clearly he didn't have Jesus in mind because this child, remember, has to be born within Ahaz's lifetime to be assigned to him that before that child gets too old, Aram and Israel will be crushed and Assyria will come and crush them. Who is it? Well, to cut a long story short, I think the child that's promised in chapter 7 turns out to be the child born to Isaiah in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8 verse 3, Isaiah has a son. In chapter 8 verse 4, God explicitly tells Isaiah that before his son is old enough to speak, Aram and Israel will be plundered. Which is exactly what he promised with the child called Emmanuel that was to come. And as the chapter goes on, the idea of God with us and Emmanuel keeps on getting mentioned, keeps popping up. And then finally, towards the end of chapter 8, notice what Isaiah comes out and bluntly says about him and his family in verse, well, look at 18, verse 18 of chapter 8. Isaiah says to them, Here I am, and the children the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel for the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Holding it together then in 7 and 8. Can you see? Ahaz is a woeful king who trusted Assyria rather than trusting God. As a sign of rejection, God promises the birth of a child. That child turns out to be Isaiah's own son. And by the time that child has grown up, Ahaz will be punished by Assyria, the very country he foolishly ran to for help and protection. And the reason I just kind of bowl very quickly through chapter 8 is to get to chapter 9. Because in chapter 9, there is suddenly a very significant prediction about a stunning new king. That after the rejection of woeful King Ahaz and the likes of him, a wonderful king is promised. 
Come to me to chapter 9, verse 1. It says there, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. That sounds like people in fear and anxiety, doesn't it? It says, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the, of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Oh, in fear and anxiety, a light has dawned. Skip down to verse 6. What is this light? Because for unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and of peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and peace from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Friends, that is staggering, isn't it? The people living previously in darkness will rejoice at the dawn of a new age, a new king, a new kingdom that is so grand that even the Gentiles, it says there, are going to be caught up in it. Ruled by a king with astonishing qualities. A realm of justice and righteousness, a king of power and whose peace will never end, a counsellor, a father, a peacemaker, a mighty God. It's this beautiful blend of strength and tenderness, of authority and care. Here is a leader that you can truly delight in. All the more after the disappointment of Ahaz and those like him. The contrast couldn't be more stark, could it? Ahaz, a scared, disobedient, unstable ruler, a person who made mistakes and who then tries to cover his tracks with false piety. And here, the strong, obedient, dependable leader, the wonderful king, whose kingdom, honestly, it's a delight to be in, whose commands are a blessing to keep, who anyone would count it a privilege to be his subject, who provides for his people everlasting peace and justice and righteousness. And Isaiah, I hope you can feel, is just ramping up the expectations of the leader who will come and lead the holy seed that was tantalizingly mentioned for us at the end of chapter 6. But of course, if you're following Isaiah closely as we trek up the Mount, Mount Everest, the first question ought to be in your mind is, oh man, sure, this leader sounds great, but honestly, who will be left to lead? If Assyria is coming and the devastation will be so grand, who will he even lead? And what happens as we keep trekking up Mount Everest here is that Isaiah starts now to openly talk about a remnant. And so in chapters 10 and 11 and 12, suddenly in the book of Isaiah, you get this mention of a remnant. It's the idea of a fragment, almost a leftover bit of Israel. It's an idea that's actually been there quite a, a, a little bit earlier in the book of Isaiah that we kind of saw the holy stump in the land after the, the whole the whole forest was leveled it's kind of been mentioned there and at the end of chapter 6 but openly now Isaiah speaks of a remnant new growth is going to emerge come over to chapter 10 and we'll just we'll just trace through some of this remnant thinking look at chapter 10 verse 12 it says, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, 
and I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. So here is a hang in there, is what God is saying. Hang in there. Assyria will come, but look, they will get punished too because I'll go way too far. They're full of pride too and full of themselves. But look down at verse 20, chapter 10, verse 20. He says, in that day, after, after, that's in, after the Assyrians have been defeated, uh, uh, punished, in that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, who no longer uh, will sorry will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. See that's that saying that this remnant they will no longer be reliant on those who struck them down. That is, they'll no longer rely on Assyria, like stupid Ahaz did. The remnant will no longer rely on military muscle or political power. The remnant will truly. Rely on the Lord. A remnant of people who are like that will appear. Sadly, it's only a remnant. See chapter 10 verse 21. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people will be like sand by the sea. That idea that they once massed the sand on the seashore, so many grains. But only a re- but Israel, only a remnant will return only small in number it will not be humanly speaking very impressive at all but god is saying to the nation hang in there at least there will be some and isaiah keeps encouraging his listeners with that kind of news to say don't do what the don't do what king ahaz did you keep trusting and fearing the lord instead look at verse 24 therefore this is chapter 10 verse 24 this is what the lord the almighty says my people who live in zion do not be afraid of the assyrians who beat you with rod and lift a club against you as egypt did very soon my anger will with you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction hang in there a remnant will return and then Isaiah wants to speak about uh, God has great things in store for this remnant. And so we pick up where, where, um, where Maker read for us in chapter 11 about just the great things that God has in store for those who hang in there who still trust him. And so in chapter 11 verse 1 it picks up, this is how great it's going to be. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. It's... It, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And it's reminding us again of this new leader that he's already mentioned. At this leader, he's going to come. It says he'll be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's fascinating that he calls it the stump of Jesse. If you remember from the, from the, if you've got, if you remember from the Old Testament, Jesse was King David's dad. And I find it fascinating that it says here that the shoot will come from the stump of, you expect it to say the stump of David. But it actually says the stump of Jesse. What's the importance of that? I think he's saying that this new king, oh man, he's going to take things back to square one. Back before it all got messed up. Back before the pomp and the arrogance of all the kings in Jerusalem. Back before the civil war and the split of the kingdom. Back to humble beginnings back to Bethlehem where Jesse lived and from there 
a shoot will rise. You ought to be thinking Jesus. You ought to be thinking Jesus. And he, this, this child, the born, this, this one who's coming, man, he is going to be so what? He'll be the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, absolutely. And Isaiah keeps on, he adds to it here and keeps ramping it up. He'll be a king with understanding, a king with compassion, a king under whom you'll feel protected. Verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees. That is, he's not going to be tricked by someone's outward appearance. Or he won't decide by what he, what he hears, which means he won't be swayed by flattery. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give directions for the poor on the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, but with the breath of the lips, he will slay the wicked. Friends, are you sick and tired of being ripped off in this world? Tired of feeling unsafe and unsecure and vulnerable? Tired and confused about what advice to follow in this world? If that is you, this, this is the king for you. A king who is insightful, who you can't pull the wool over his eyes. A king in whom you'll feel safe. Especially as you keep reading chapter 11 and it will go on to say, this is what it would be like in this guy's kingdom. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion will be yearling together, a child will lead them. And on it goes with this wonderful picture of a place without threat, a place without menace, a place without hazard, a place without risk where you won't need to lock your doors, where you won't need to have any insurance, don't need any need for a police force. Who gets to be in this place? It's the remnant. But more than that, because it takes a very surprising twist in verse 10. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, plural. Not just the people, peoples. The nation, no, the nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. It's, it's this, this guy, this king coming, his leader coming, he will stand as a banner, as a protection, not just for Israel and the remnant, but the nations will rally to him. In other words, the king of this remnant is somehow going to open up things for all peoples to be incorporated into that somehow he's going to make it possible for all nations, not just Israel, to be in his kingdom and his glorious place of rest. And you ought to be reading it going, man, that's fantastic. Wouldn't it be lovely to be in a place of rest like that, a glorious place of safety? Am I going to be in it? And you ought to be reading these chapters going, look, anyone who follows that king who's coming, and it's clearly Jesus, man, they are in it. But before we revel in glory in that, there is one last twist about the remnant that I, I think you need to see. That's important to see to hold this all together. Because of what turns out is that this one, this child coming, he's not just going to be the king over the remnant. In a very real way, he effectively turns out to be the remnant. Because what happens if you keep reading your Bibles from this point on past Isaiah, if you keep reading in the rest of the Old Testament, that things happen just as Isaiah said it would happen, that Israel is punished by Assyria. And do you know what after that happens? The people still don't return to God. And so they are punished again, this time even more severely under the hands of the Babylonians. And you know what? They still don't get it. And they still refuse to return to God. They are still not the faithful remnant that's being described here. 
And so then Jesus Christ appears. The wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the shoot from the stump of Jesse appears in Bethlehem and he calls on Israel to repent and he calls upon them to be the faithful remnant that they were meant to be. And you never guess what they did. They crucified him. Even at his death, Jesus looking for a faithful remnant that will fear God rather than fear men. And yet even his own disciples abandon him because they fear men more than they fear God. And so in the end, the remnant of Israel turns out to be a remnant of one. Jesus himself. And yet so dazzling is this king that through his death and resurrection, the offer goes out to all the world that we can join him in the remnant that he is by having our sins washed as white as snow, that we can be forgiven and embraced of God and we can join the ranks of people who from all over the world are rallying to him as Jesus effectively calls us to join with him in the remnant that he is. And so chapter 12, our section, finishes off with Israel singing a song. It's the song of the remnant as they rejoice in just how dazzling and good and kind and gracious and generous this new leader is. And there's our six chapters. Hopefully you're feeling like you've got a bit of a hold on them. And of course, you should be asking, well, that's great. What do I do with it? Let me close by coming back to that whole issue of fear and anxiety. Hopefully you've already remembered from what we've seen already that one of the engine rooms, one of the engine rooms that helps you with fear and anxiety is knowing that our God is controlling the future and he is for you, not against you. Emmanuel, that's an engine room. But there's another engine room here, the surprising one. See, this God who controls history, who plans the future, who through the remnant of just one person can build a holy people and a holy nation, a God with that much control and power, even over all the events of history, the truth is, he's the scary one. He's the one to fear. In fact, Isaiah got very blunt with this back in chapter 8 that we skimmed over very quickly. If you've got your Bibles, just click back to chapter 8, verse 12. As Isaiah is speaking to some of the people who should be listening, and he says to them, Do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now, this is the surprising element. A word to the faithful people of God. The word is, regard God as fearful. Add to your fear. And make sure God is the biggest fear you have. That's the counterintuitive bit, isn't it? How do you deal with your fears? You add to it. By seeing the biggest one, the fear. And that is the point that Isaiah has been trying to show us over a number of weeks now, that when he saw Isaiah chapter 6 and had some kind of tangible glimpse of just the sheer enormity of the holiness and power of our God. 
when he saw just how big God, he was scared, wasn't he? He was, he was, I'm ruined. He knew how strong God was. And when you get a feel for how big and strong and our God is, then honestly, don't fear Assyria. Honestly, what have they got? I don't care how big their army is compared to my God. What have they got? And what of Egypt? And what of Babylon? And what of... They're just smoldering stubs. Compared to God, they got nothing. They're just flies and bees. That our God who controls history just does what he wants with. Dare I say it, that when you see how worthy our God is of fearing, you will never be afraid of men again. I think that's really important to end with because we now live in a, in a day and a culture in modern Christianity where it's not popular to talk about the fear of the Lord. I think it's a great witness of modern Christianity because what we've tried to do is make God more accessible. We've tried to make him more warm and look nicer and, and friendlier and gentler. And can I say, hear me very clear at this point, our God is warm. He is gentle. He is so compassionate. A bruised we, a reed, he won't break. He is the good shepherd who walks beside you and through your hard times. He is the gracious, loving God who holds you in his hands. But that God, who is the good shepherd, now he is the terrifying Lord of the universe. And the sheer enormity of his power ought to make you fearful. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said. Uh, this one, one, one verse on the screen today. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid. Of those who kill the body and who after that can do no more. I'll tell you the one you should fear. Fear him who after your body's been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. I tell you, fear him. Now who is the one who's got the authority to throw you into hell? It's not Satan. It's God. He is the one you should be afraid. He is the one you are to fear. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God unforgiven now this matters for you for how you deal with your fears fears of finances or powers or forces or death itself if you're to be free from fear and anxiety making you make dumb decisions you need to know that the god of the universe who cares for you who is working for your good in all things who control history is also the god who holds you gently in his hand but on an arm that can crush anything in the universe. He is the one to fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know. We know that when you ask that question of us, if God is for us, who can be against us? We know the answer is so many people and powers can stand against us. But Father, when we know you and fear you, and understand who you are. We know, Father, that who if, if you are for us, then who cares who stands against us? May we fear you and trust you and love you. Amen.